So, Father, um, we need you. Uh, we are completely dependent on you. Um, as I get older, I mean, I'm, I'm almost approaching 40 years old. And uh, yeah, everyone's like, whoa, I know. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this cherub-like face, uh, this youthfulness uh, that I wish I, I could look in the mirror and I wish my body felt the same way, Lord. But with just fingers hurting, knees hurting, it's just like, oh, great. Uh, Lord, it just reminds me and we all know here our bodies are fragile. Our lives are a vapor. And so who are we to say that we are the masters of our own destiny? We need you. And so, Lord, we need you even today, right now, as we open up your word, as we begin uh, this series. Uh, Lord, uh, I need your help. Um, I need to be able to stay focused and to say exactly what you want me to say and be true to your word. And, Lord, I want uh, uh, the truth that is found in this amazing book, uh, Lord, that we would all embrace it and live by it. So I ask that you would uh, bless this time for your glory, completely your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles, go to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. In your New Testaments, you've got Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and there you have uh, Philippians. Wait, Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians, yes. Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers, or together with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to be starting a brand new series going through one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of Philippians. And technically, this is not a book. This is actually a letter. It's an ancient letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, to a city, uh, a church in the city of Philippi, which was located about the northern uh, region of um, uh, of Greece in an, in an area called Macedonia. It was written about 60, 62 AD. And out of all of Paul's letters, um, this one really doesn't have a lot of bad things to say about the church. I mean, you know, it, 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 he's not spending a whole bunch of time uh, refuting false teachers who have infiltrated the church. He's not spending a lot of time, you know, uh, rebuking them for all the sins that they're engaging in. They shouldn't be engaging in. I mean, he addresses a, a relational conflict, but the majority of the letter is one of encouragement. And now the, uh, I found this interesting. You, you, this is probably going to be amazing for you guys to know. Uh, scholars would, uh, would categorize uh, this letter as a friendship letter. Wow, right? You're impressed by that. You're like, I would not know if you hadn't told me. A friendship letter. I was like, well, no dust, Sherlock. You just read it and you realize that Paul, this, these are friends to Paul. So it is a friendship letter. But these scholars geek out even more, not to offend any scholars in the room. Um, anyways, but uh, they categorize these friendship letters into two types. There's uh, formal friendship letters and informal friendship letters. Uh, formal friendship letters have a, a main point. There's an intent on their main point, main points, and the rest of the letter kind of explains or expands on that main point. Uh, informal uh, friendship letters are the exact opposite. There's really no rhyme or reason. It's just kind of off the cuff. As the thoughts are coming to them, they're just writing down. Just a simple letter. Um, as I've been studying uh, and preparing for this series, it is um, amazed me how many really intelligent individuals. I mean, these are the people with you know, their name and then like all these abbreviations after it, you know, it's like, you know, William Smith, PhD and da, 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 da. Like someone call said more degrees than Fahrenheit, you know, kind of thing. So it's like, they're really, really sh uh, uh, smart, but they come to the conclusion that Philippians is an informal friendship letter. There's really no rhyme or reason. It's just, you know, it's a, he, he loves the Philippians, and so that's what he's doing. He's just writing, and as the thoughts are coming to him, he's just writing it down. And so it, you can't really nail down what Paul's really getting at in conclusion. You, we really, as far as interpreting this letter, it, that might be impossible to do. 
But that doesn't make any sense. You know, for one, that's not Paul's MO. If you were to read all of Paul's letters, I mean, Paul was very intentional how he wrote. He always had a point and he always expanded on that point. I mean, that's just the way his brain was wired. He was just really detailed. Further, he was guided by the Holy Spirit. Everything he wrote, this, was in, this is inspired word of God. And as, as uh, he tells Timothy, all scripture is God breathed. Whoa, where am I? Well, look at that. Oh, you know what? <laughs> I got the holy water right here. Hold on, everybody. Power of Christ compels you. Um, well, hopefully that doesn't happen again. But no, this is this is a God's word. Is that where I'm at? This is inspired by God. This is inspired by God, which means it is profitable for us. We can understand uh, what Paul's getting at. Why would God preserve this letter if we couldn't understand it? And, and just by a simple observation, if we read chapter 1 and we get to verse 27, so go ahead and go there, 27, we find the main purpose or the, the, the main point, the thesis statement of the entire letter. He says here, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and this too from God. When he says conduct yourselves, he's using the Greek word politumai, which literally translates as a to be a citizen. Later on in the letter, he's going to say that as Christians, we are citizens of heaven. Uh, another way of saying this, we are citizens of God's kingdom. And as citizens of God's kingdom, we are commanded to live our life in such a way that is appropriate or fitting for those who actually say they follow Jesus. That's what Paul's getting at. And he's going to take the rest of the, of the, the letter to explain how this looks. And so in chapter 2, he says, if you're a citizen of the kingdom, it means following the example, example of Christ. In chapter 3, it means valuing uh, Jesus above all other things. In chapter 4, it's about being uh, a people of prayer and, and being content. And, and splattered throughout the whole uh, letter is this theme of joy. Citizens of God's kingdom are a joyful people. Wow. I guess my voice is kind of boomy there. <laughs> Citizens of God's kingdom are a joyful people. We can experience uh, joy regardless of what situation we find ourselves in. Whatever circumstance, we can experience joy. And, and this is, again, an amazing letter. It's not that long of a letter. It's only four chapters long, but we're going to spend the next eight weeks in, uh, digesting it, really just taking in this amazing letter. So uh, before we examine just those first two uh, verses of chapter one, which is the formal greeting, um, I would like to go back in time to the book of Acts chapter 15. So go there, Acts chapter 15. We're going to start towards the end of chapter 15. Uh, I believe it's verse 36, but we're going to look at the start of this church in Philippi. Get some context here. Chapter, oh, sorry, chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Sorry if I said chapter 10. Uh, chapter 15, uh, starting at verse 36. So when we're first introduced to Paul, Paul is uh, referring to himself by his Jewish name, Saul. And Saul kind of grew up in basically the equivalent of a college town. There was a very popular uh, a Hebrew school where he lived, and Paul attended that. He was a brilliant man. Saul was a brilliant, brilliant man. And he studied under the top scholar of his day, Gamaliel. And when he graduated, he eventually became a Pharisee, a religious leader. And he was absolutely passionate about following the, the law of Moses and following the Jewish traditions. He was so passionate that anyone or anything that came against his world that he was living by, uh, he violently opposed. And so you have these men and women starting to follow this Galilean by the name of Jesus. 
and uh, you know we're, we're following Jesus. We're, we're, he were his disciples, and uh, Saul's like, wait a minute, this blasphemer who was uh, executed, uh, who, who said that he was the Messiah, that he was the King, uh, and, and that he was the Son of God. No way, no how. And so he violently opposed them, searching out these so-called Christians. At, at that time, they were called followers of the Way, and he was finding them and putting them into prison. Eventually, uh, Jesus, the risen Jesus, miraculously reveals himself to Saul and his life is changed, completely changed. And eventually he starts referring, uh, going by his Roman name, Paul. And uh, he is uh, eventually... uh, um, uh, commissioned by the church in Jerusalem, along with his partner Barnabas, to go out and proclaim the gospel to whoever would be willing to hear. And so that's what they do. They go out and, and, and uh, they first start in the, the synagogues because that's where there's some common ground there. You know, the Hebrews believe in the, the creator Yahweh. They believe in the Hebrew scriptures. And so Barnabas and Paul would reason with them, kind of showing them how these Hebrew scriptures pointed to the fulfillment in Jesus and that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And then afterwards, they would go out to the marketplaces and throughout the towns and proclaim the gospel. And not only were Jews coming to the faith in Christ, but also Gentiles were coming to faith. You got, you know, Romans, Greeks, uh, uh, Ethiopians, they're all coming to faith. And the question arose, you know, should these Gentiles be required to follow the law of Moses in order to be saved? And so that question was brought uh, before the church in Jerusalem and the leaders there prayed and came to the decision that no, we're not going to put that burden on the Gentiles. We just want them to follow a couple of things. They put that in a letter form and they sent it out with Paul and and Barnabas and and Silas and they went to, to Antioch to go ahead and deliver the news. And most likely the idea was that this, this news was to spread out even further. Uh, this decision was to spread out further. And that's where we pick up, uh, the, the narrative starting at verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers and meaning the brothers and sisters in Christ in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. See how they're going. You know, we just, we, we planted these churches and these, these people are just, you know, new to the faith. Let's see how they're going. Let's see if we can encourage them, if we can teach them anything. Uh, verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark. John Mark was actually the cousin of Barnabas. Um, Barnabas wanted to take John, Mark call, uh, John called Mark along with them also. But Paul kept insisting or was of the opinion that they should not take along with them this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. In Acts chapter 13, it actually uh, records this account, but we're not given the reason why John Mark just bailed on them. Um, it, it could possibly have been fear. I mean, I could, that's the only thing I can really think of right now, fear, because even though that the, the gospel was being well-received by a lot of people, there was a lot of intense moments, a lot of intense uh, opposition. And at some point, John Mark was like, I'm sorry, I got it. I'm, I'm gone. I'm going back to uh, Jerusalem, uh, which probably uh, frustrated Paul. I mean, if any of you have ever planned a, a birthday party or a special event and you've given one individual a very significant uh, responsibility and then right at the last moment, they're like, sorry, can't be there. They bail on you. I mean, you imagine how frustrating that could be. And so for Paul, um, he's saying, you want to take on John Mark? I'm sorry, that is a big N-O from me. We're not going to do that. Not going to do that. Verse 39. Now it turned into such a sharp disagreement. So this wasn't just, oh, I disagree with you, Barnabas. You know, let's talk. This was a, a emotions were raised. This was a really heated disagreement, a sharp uh, disagreement that they ended up separating from one another. They ended up parting company. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas, who was a prophet and one of the leading men in the church in Jerusalem, and left after being entrusted by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and still that place, uh, strengthening the churches. Um, when it comes to Bible name words, sometimes it's just like, now sounds like Klingon to me. I don't really know. Um, now the, the Bible doesn't tell us whether or not Barnabas's choice to give John Mark a second chance was a sin, nor does it tell us that Paul's decision to not take John Mark along with them was a sin. It's just simply telling us what happened. It was, it was two, you know, two individuals who had really strong convictions. They were opposite of each other and they just could decided that they weren't going to serve in ministry together, which is a sad thing. But what I find very interesting is the results of Barnabas 
giving John Mark that second chance. When we're first introduced to Barnabas, his, uh, he's, his real name is Joseph, and the disciples end up calling him Barnabas because that means the son of encouragement. And that's exactly who Barnabas was. He was an encourager. In fact, when, when uh, Paul uh, first came to Christ, he was trying to, you know, fellowship with the believers, but the believers were like, hey, wait a minute, we know who you are. No, we're not going to trust you. No way. And it was Barnabas who stuck by Paul and was encouraging the other brothers and sisters saying, no, 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 God has worked in his life. He's, 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 he's on team Jesus now. We can accept him into our fellowship. And here we see Barnabas doing the exact same thing. Here's this deserter who bailed when they probably needed him the most. And Barnabas is like, you know what? I want to give him a second chance. And Paul's like, you know, I, I'm sorry. I just can't do that. I can't do that. So Barnabas is like, okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and take John with me and we're going to go here and we're going to continue our mission. And so that's what happens. Years and years go by. Paul is now a, a, a prisoner for the second time in Rome. Uh, but this time he's not going to get out. He's going to actually get executed. And he's writing a letter to one of his dear friends, Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy. Keep your finger in Acts, but go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. So here, starting at verse 9, this is at the end, close of, of, of his letter to Timothy. So he's speaking to Timothy in, in verse 9. He says, Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, this one individual, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. It's like, hey, please come. All these people are leaving me. I'm in prison. Just you come, come on down quickly. Look what he says. Take along, along Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service. Whoa. It's just such a stark contrast. Here is this deserter. When you needed him the most, he deserted them, you know, the deserting brother to now he is useful for service. It's amazing. John Mark, um, because of his uh, relationship with uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, ends up actually writing the Gospel of Mark. And if church history is correct, he was the first Christian to plant a church in Africa. Again, wow. We can learn a lot from Barnabas. You know, some of you are encouragers. You're natural encouragers. It's just any and every opportunity you find to encourage someone. Others are not so much. And maybe you're in denial, but your family and friends know it. And they're going, amen. But they're not going to say it out front because they know how you're going to respond. Um, but some of you are not that way. Maybe you're just more side on the, the critical side. You're, you're more on correcting. And not, in the, not to say none of those, those things are evil in and of themselves, but that's all you do. You know, that's all you do. Um, as human beings, the way God designs, we're, we're emotional beings. And yes, unfortunately, sometimes we focus too much on those emotions and those emotions go haywire, but we're still emotional beings regardless. That's how God wired us, made us. And each one of us carries along with us a, a, this emotional bank account, and when someone criticizes us or corrects us, which happens, um, that's like a withdrawal from that bank account. But when someone comes along and encourages us, that's like a deposit into that bank account. And so this is something, especially you know, spouses, parents, uh, especially men with our wives and with our kids, something we need to realize if we're constantly just criticizing our spouse, correcting our spouse, criticizing our kids, correcting, that's all we're doing. We're just withdrawal, 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 withdrawal. Pretty soon there's nothing left in their account and we've just beaten them down. What we need to do is we need to learn from Barnabas and we need to intentionally be frequently making those deposits of encouragement into their life. So much so that when the time does come to correct and critique, because that happens, when the time comes to do that, there's enough in their account to receive that correction. It won't beat them down. In fact, it'll build them up. 
Again, we can learn a lot from Barnabas. Encouragement goes a long way. Look what it did for John Mark. For some of you, you're thinking, we can't hide from the excuse, well, that's just not who I am. I'm just not wired that way, tough, tough noogies or whatever. You can't hide behind that. That's really, truly, that's just a, a lazy response. What you're saying is that encouragement doesn't come naturally to me, so I don't want to work at it. That's laziness. The Bible has a lot to say about that, but well, that's another sermon. We can't hide behind that. We need to learn from Barnabas and be an encourager. It can go a long way. God uses it in such a powerful way. So when we get to uh, chapter 16, Paul uh, and, and the comp Silas, they, they go to Lustra uh, and they encounter a young man named Timothy who's a believer, is really, really, uh, for his age, he's a very mature Christian and uh, they invite him to join them on their missionary journey. And skip down to uh, chapter 16, verse six. Of Acts, sorry, of Acts. We're back in Acts, back in Acts. Chapter 16, verse six. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region after being forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia and the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and pleading with him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, we immediately sought to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, some of you, if you've been studying this prior, prior to the sermon, uh, probably wondered, well, why did the pronouns change? It was like, they were doing this, they were doing this. Now it's saying we, especially on verse, um, verse tw- uh, 10. When he says, we, when he had seen the vision, we immediately sought to leave for Macedonia. At this point, Luke, who is the author of Acts, actually joins Paul and Silas on their journey. So that's why the pronouns change from they to, to we. So here's Paul. He's, again, a, a, a man who likes to plan, uh, and he's planning to go to certain areas, but the Holy Spirit's saying no, no, and he's changing those plans. Now, for us, if we were to plan a, a, a trip... I mean, it's pretty easy. I mean, you could do it on your phone. You could do it on your laptop, computer, whatever. In just a couple of hours, you can go on Google Maps, chart out everything, the right routes to take, the fastest way to get there. You could per, you know, reserve your hotel stays. You could purchase your plane tickets or event tickets in advance, and you're all done. It's all great. There it is. Um, but in the first century, if you were going to go on a trip, I mean, you really had to make sure your ducks were in a row. I mean, you really had to make sure, okay, which route are we going to take? Because most of it's going to be, traveling is going to be on foot, and some routes are a little bit more safer than others because there's, you know, bandits out there wanting to steal and kill you. Um, And not only that, but certain routes, uh, depending on the weather, is this route going to be good or is this route going to be safer? Um, How much provisions, you know, how long is the journey going to take us? Uh, Well, if we average about 20 miles a day. It's going to take us this many weeks. And, and so we, how much provisions do we need to bring with us? Because what, you know, what's the difference between distance between one city to another for us, if we loot, you know, run out of water or food or whatever, we could just stop at a you know, drugstore, any market and just pick up what we need. In those days, if you run out of something, uh, you might be out in the middle of nowhere. And, and judging from the writings of Paul, no doubt Paul was a really good planner. Just detailed. Oh, yes, this, 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 this. Really thinking it through. Thinking. Some of you guys like that. You're just, you love. I mean, that's your, 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 uh, you know, your spirit or love language, right? It's just like planning things. You're just like, oh, yes, I, I love planning. Um, and so no doubt Paul's like planning, okay, I want to go to Asia and I want to go to this city and this city and we're going to proclaim the gospel. All right, everything, I got everything together, let's go. And they're going and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says, nope, not going. Oh, okay, 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 let's scrap that idea. Okay, that only took me about two weeks, Lord. Um, okay, let's, let's, let's plan this. Okay, no, we're going we're gonna to go into Bithynia. And, and let's, let's try to go into Bithynia. And in, in the Greek, when it says they were trying to go in Bithynia, they're saying they kept on trying to go into Bithynia going, trying this way, trying that way, whatever. And eventually nothing was working. And whether it was a, through a vision or a dream, whatever, they recognized the Holy Spirit saying, no, got to change your course, got to change your plans. And, and this is a, 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 um, 
definitely what I see here is, is a fulfillment of what, when G, what Jesus promised when he said, I will build my church, that Jesus is actively involved through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's guiding and directing Paul as they're going and proclaiming the gospel. He's, just, he's, he's not just leaving them alone. He's guiding them. This is his church, he's, after all. Further, um, it, 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 it expands on the, the truth that Proverbs says when it says a, a, a man um, plans out his, his, you know, plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. It's like if, if we are intentionally wanting to follow God and allow him to guide us and direct us, we should not be surprised if he changes our plans. And sometimes at the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> which could be very frustrating, especially if you're a planner. I mean, you're just like, hey, man, I know how that feels. God's not wanting to do that to make you frustrated. His whole desire is that you would be uh, grow and be conformed to the image of his son, and his whole heart is for the, the, the furtherance of, of, the, of the kingdom. Um, but sometimes that happens. Sometimes he just changes everything. Of course, it's okay, instead of this opportunity, I'm going to open up another opportunity you know, for, for some people, they, they'll say, you know, I, I, really, I really want to know what the will of God is. How do I find out what the will of God is for my life? Well, if you read the beginning portion of, of Romans chapter 12, he says, do, no long, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't allow yourself to be pushed into the, the mold of this world. Instead, be transformed or allow yourself to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Allow yourself to be transformed by the truth of God's word. Allow yourself to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Allow yourself to be guided by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine because that leads you to do stuff you shouldn't be doing. Instead, be filled. Allow yourself to be filled with the Spirit. In Galatians, he says, walk in step with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit and allow him to guide you and direct you and be open to the opportunity that or the, 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 uh, the, the reality that he might change your plans. You know, it, it, you're not really, you're not called to just sit on your hands and just wait for God's will to just fall into your lap. Ah! You know, it's not supposed to do that. God has already given you work to do. So go do it. And if you are intentional about letting the Holy Spirit guide you and direct you, guess what? He's going to reveal his plans. So just Go. Do. Don't just sit down and go, oh, what's going to do? (laughs) Just do it. Holy Spirit's guiding you and directing you. Paul was that way. No doubt there might have been some frustrations like, oh, really? Changing plans here? But all right, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. And it always led to a good thing. Um, Let me see here. We are picking up at verse 11. So after setting sail from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and on, on the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were spending some days in the city. So uh, the, 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 the city of Philippi was um, originally established by the father of Alexander the Great. And eventually it became under Roman rule. And years go by, Julius Caesar is assassinated by Brutus and Cassius. And Brutus and Cassius flee Rome along with a whole bunch of Roman soldiers who were, I guess, for the cause of Brutus and Cassius. And there was a battle that took place near the city of Philippi. And Octavian, later known as Augustine, he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And Mark Anthony pursued Brutus and Cassius. And so they went and they were battling it out. And citizens from the city of Philippi came to the aid of Octavian and and Mark Anthony and the battle was won. And as a result of their devotion to the empire and to the Caesar, the city of Philippi was granted the coveted title of Roman colony which basically meant the entire, those who lived in the city were assimilated and became Roman citizens. If they had any kids, those kids automatically became Roman citizens, which meant they received a number of perks. One of them was they're able to buy and sell land, something no one else could do. Um, they, were, they were excused from paying certain taxes, which was a good thing. And not only that, but if there was any legal issues, they had um, some legal protection because they're a Roman citizen. It was, it was a, kind of a title, like, I'm a Roman citizen. 
Uh, in fact, uh, Philippi uh, ended up getting uh, the nickname Little Rome because of, they loved Rome so much. They uh, designed all their architecture to look like Rome. The clothing was what you would see people in Rome wear. The, 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 the language, they mainly spoke Latin in the city. Uh, their money was all Roman coins. I mean, even though it wasn't actually in Rome, that city of Philippi was Rome through and through. And so here Paul goes uh, to this city saying it's a leading city in the district. Leading city, uh, men, it was, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty uh, important of a city. It wasn't really that large of a city, but right next to the city was a, a, a road, a paved road that uh, used to be uh, used for soldiers, you know, military to use. But when that was done, it became a trade route. And so you had all these different cities kind of coming in and purchasing and selling in the city of Philippi. So it was a great place for Paul to start spreading the gospel there because then it's going to, you know, take off. So uh, he stops here in, in, in the city of Philippi, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went out the gate to a riverside uh, where we were thinking that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. It takes about 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue. Um, If there was no synagogue, usually people would worship outside the city gates if there was a river because they can use that water for ceremonial purposes. Um, Here, not only was there no no 10 men to to do a synagogue, it doesn't even look like there were men. Here, it just says here, Paul was sitting down and Paul and Silas were talking and, uh, to the women who had assembled. Now, some of the rabbis during Paul's time uh, would say it is better to burn the law than to preach it to a woman. Ooh, yeah, I knew I was going to get a response on that one. It was like, oh, that's not how it works with Jesus. Jesus knows every person needs to hear the gospel, the good news. Everyone needs to be saved. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're talking to these women. Verse 14, and a woman named Lydia was listening. She was a seller of purple fabrics from the city of Thyatira and a worshiper of God. So she was not an actual Jew, but she was a God-fearer. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Again, this is a, a further fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made uh, to his disciples when he said, when I leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is going to convict people of their need for a savior. Here, Lydia is hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and she, the Holy Spirit's working in her and is convicting her of her need for a savior. So she responds. This woman, Lydia, she was a seller of purple fabrics, which probably most likely meant she was very wealthy because uh, purple fabric was very expensive because the process to make that purple dye was like ridiculous. It was, you know, crushing these like shells and all this other kind of stuff. Um, and a lot of rich individuals would purchase this, this uh, purple fabric. Uh, so she responds to the gospel, verse 15. Now, when she and her household had been baptized, so not only did she respond to the gospel, but her whole household, which might have even included the servants, responded to the gospel. When they had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to, of the, to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She kept on insisting. And finally, they were like, okay, fine, fine. We'll stay with you. Verse 16, it happened that we were going to the place, a place, to the place of prayer. A slave woman who had a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing great profit to her masters by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us and cried out repeatedly saying, these men are bod servants of the most high God who are proclaiming to, uh, to you a way of salvation. Now, technically what the slave the demon is saying through the slave woman is not wrong, right? Paul and Silas and Timothy, they are uh, servants of the most high and they are proclaiming the way of salvation. Uh, but this might've, again, it's not, the Bible's not really clear, but it could have been like in a mocking way. Um, also, if there's, if she's the slave girl shouting it all over the place, uh, in that context, uh, the most high God would refer to Zeus and the way to salvation would be allegiance to Caesar. So, whatever reason, Paul was like perturbed here. Now she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. And he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. 
But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was suddenly gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men, Jews as they are, are causing our city trouble. And they are proclaiming customs that are not lawful for us to accept or to practice since we are Romans. The crowd joined in an attack against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. So everything that just happened after the slave girl incident is completely in Roman law illegal because Paul and Silas are actually Roman citizens. And as Roman citizens, they have the perks of a trial before they get punished. Well, Again, the Bible doesn't really tell us why Paul and Silas didn't reveal that yet. Maybe they, I don't know, maybe they wanted to not say anything right now or maybe it was just things happened so fast that they didn't have a chance to say it. Whatever, uh, they were struck, they're beaten, and then they were put in prison. And it said, um, verse 24, and he, referring to the jailer, the guard, having received such a command to you know, guard them securely, threw them into the prison inner prison and fasten their feet to the stock. So not only are they at the prison, but they're in the inner prison, which is like the high, you know, security area. I mean, it's just guys, you know, proclaiming Christ, but they're put into the stocks. Um, their feet are put in the stocks and uh, it, the way the stocks were designed, it was not designed to be comfortable. In most cases, it was designed to torture you, uh, to like literally keep you, in a position that was so awkward that your body would start cramping up. And so you couldn't even rest. You couldn't even sleep. And we kind of see that here possibly because uh, Paul and Silas are still awake at midnight. Verse uh, 25. Now about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. (laughs) This is just so amazing. And it's so um, relevant for our day. So here's Paul and Silas. They've just been uh, beaten pretty severely, probably uh, beaten with rods. I don't know, you know, how heavy those rods were, but it was meant to cause pain and injure. And uh, they were shamed. They were put into this uncomfortable position in the stocks and the dungeon all by themselves. They don't know what's going on. They've been treated unjustly. And what is their response? They're worshiping God. I mean, this is so relevant, especially right now. Because some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have been going through really hard times. Some of you, um, you know, you, you, because of all the polit- political, the polar stuff that's going on, polarization of pol- politics and medicine and everything, you've may have lost, had, now you're having conflicts with family members, maybe friends, maybe neighbors, And on top of that, maybe you're being ridiculed for the convictions that you're holding. And some of you, your your jobs are being threatened because of those convictions. And you are being treated unjustly. What is your response? Ah! (laughs) Woe is me. Worship. You want to know how you get through what you're going through? Start with worship. Worship gets the focus off of you. Woe is me gets the focus off of the situation and gets the focus right, right back on God. You want to know the secret to know to get through what you're going through? Start with worship. That's what Paul and Silas are doing. They're, they're worshiping and everyone's listening to them. All the prisoners are listening to them. This is, a, this is a, an idea that Paul brings up again and again in the book of Philippians, this idea of joy. You can experience joy regardless of what situation you encounter. See, happiness and joy are different. Happiness is the result of your situation. You get a job, you're happy. You, have a, uh, you get married, you're happy, all that. that that's you know, based on the situation. Joy is much more strong, much more deeper than that. Joy can be experienced regardless of anything good is happening. Joy is not the absence of pain or trial. Joy is the presence of Jesus. That's what it is. We see that. They have joy The people are listening to them. In verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. 
Wow, that's pretty cool. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, thinking that the prisoners had escaped. I mean, all these prisoners are gone and it was on his watch. And so the way the law worked is if those prisoners are gone, their punishment goes on to you. So he's like, I'm just going to end it all right now. And then Paul says in verse 28, but Paul called out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Notice he doesn't say Paul and Silas are here. What does he say? We are all here. That's pretty incredible. Only God can do that. And the jailer, verse 29, asked for lights and rushed in trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus you and, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, when he says you and your household, he's not saying if you get saved, your household gets saved by proxy. Okay, that's not, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If your household believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved as well. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of God to, together, to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and he washed their wounds. The jailer is doing this. He's washing their wounds and immediately he was baptized, he and his household. So not only does he uh, become a believer, his household does as well. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and was overjoyed since he had become a believer in God together with his whole household. Skip down to verse 40. They left the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brothers and the sisters in Christ there, they encouraged them and they departed. That is the start of the church in Philippi. When I was in college, um, there was a really popular church planting conference that was happening. And uh, because I was a student at Biola, I was granted free access or whatever you call it, free ticket, free admission. And so I was attending the conferences and, and listening. And the, the, the main thrust of the conference was church planning strategies. And oddly enough, the scripture was not used at all. <laughs> it's just, this is how you do it. This is the best way to plan a church. This is the best way to run a church. And when it came to church planning specifically, they said, in order to plan a really successful church, you need to have a good core group. Well, that means you need to have the best of the best of five, six, 10 individuals who are the best of the best. They're the most competent. They're smart. They're charismatic. They're, uh, you know, they understand administration. You need the best of the best in order for your church to be successful. That's what you need. Well, let's take that strategy and go to the church of Philippi. Number one, we have Lydia who is of in society is upper class, which in the first century, either you were rich or you were poor or very poor. And the poor and the very poor did not really like the rich. So you got that there. So there's, there's Lydia. And though the Bible doesn't really say about the slave woman, whether or not she receives Christ after getting the demon out of her, but let's just say for the sake of argument that she does respond to the gospel. So here you have a wealthy woman who's really not respected maybe with most of the people. And then you have uh, this used to be demon possessed woman. There you go. And then you have this uh, Roman guard. So Rome right there already just kind of right ugly taste in their mouth for some people. Roman guard who occasionally has suicidal tendencies. And there's your core group. There's your core group. Their households as well. And God looks at that group and says, I can work with that. That's what I'm going to work with. And he does. And the church grows. And, and it doesn't just grow numerically. It grows spiritually. This church matures to the point where when we get to Philippians, he's addressing not only the, 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 the members of the church, he's also addressing the formal leadership that has been established, the overseers and the deacons. And, and by the time Paul's writing his letter to the Philippians, only 10 years has gone by. Then that church is thriving and growing in God's, in, in, in their faith in, in, in the Lord. So much so that years and years after Paul is already dead, uh, around 130, 140 uh, AD, uh, a pastor by the name of Polycarp, who used to be a disciple of the apostle John, is writing a letter to different churches and he's listing Philippi as an example. He's like, you want to know what a mature church looks like? Look at Philippi. 
They love the Lord. Their faith is just as strong as when they first heard the gospel. And they know the scriptures. Follow them as an example. That's the, 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 the church in Philippi. So they, the Paul, Silas, and, and, and Timothy, they leave. And 10 years goes by. Paul finds himself uh, uh, arrested. He's uh, taken to Rome, uh, waiting trial. Um, and uh, he's most likely on house arrest, which may, probably was also chained 24-7 to a Roman guard. And in those days, Roman guards uh, were not responsible for your well-being. They weren't, they weren't responsible for providing for your needs. And so um, you had to re- rely on a lot of contributions from friends and families. But because it was such an honor-shame society, it was very shameful to be in prison. Um, and if you knew someone who was in prison, that also was shameful. And so for a lot of these prisoners, they were just left on their own. And now we're not told exactly the, 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 the situation Paul was in, but he was in great need apparently. Ten years has gone by. He's he's in he's he's in house arrest. He's in great need. He receives a, a, a visit from a, a, a friend from the Church of Philippi, a guy named Epaphroditus. This guy has traveled over six hundred and thirty miles, mostly on foot, and uh, he's gotten sick because of the trip. He's almost going to die, but he's there to deliver a contribution from a church that already is not really a very wealthy church, but a contribution that uh, that. Uh, meets the needs of Paul. And Paul is just so overjoyed. He's so overwhelmed and, and, and he writes this letter and he's just wanting to express his appreciation, his affection for them and encourage them. And so we get to chapter one of Philippians verses one and two. We're just going to look at the greeting right here. says, Paul and Timothy. Paul is the author of the, 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 the letter to the Philippians, uh, but Timothy is kind of like the co-sender. You know, Timothy uh, knows the people personally, personally uh, in Philippi because he was there right when it started. So says, Paul and Timothy, look how he describes themselves. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. The word there for bondservants is the Greek word doulos, which can literally be translated slave. Not a lot of translations will actually put that word there, slave, because of its negative connotations with you know American slavery and all that. But uh, in the first century, over half of the population in Rome were slaves. And slavery, you, you, you weren't a slave based on your racial profile or whatever. You, you, if, if, if you were poor and you wanted to get out of poverty, you could sell yourself into slavery. If you were needing to pay off a debt, you would sell yourself into slavery to pay off that debt. If you were conquered by another kingdom, you would be brought in as a slave. If you were born to slave parents, you were automatically a, a, made a slave. For the Greeks, being a slave, the Greek philosophers, being a slave was like the lowest of the low. It was frowned upon. That's a yucky title. You would not want to attach yourself. Paul and Timothy are like, no, no, we're, we're slaves. For the Romans, um, they're a little bit different. They actually encouraged uh, the, the entire empire, not just the Roman citizens, but the whole everybody to view themselves um, as slaves to the empire that they were owned by the Roman Empire. They were, uh, their master was Caesar, and so their job was to do what their empire called them to do. A slave was legally owned by someone. That's basically the, if you want to know a technical definition, that's what a slave is. Slave is someone who is owned, legally owned by another individual. And so here Paul and Timothy are saying, we are slaves, we are owned by Jesus Christ. We don't do anything on our own. We do everything that Christ Jesus tells us to do. We are his servants, his slaves. Then he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. I want to first look at that uh, phrase, in Christ, because that is a very, one of Paul's favorite phrases to say in all scripture. Um, just in Christ. You're in Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are in Christ. That is a mark of your identity. It's who you are. If you've chosen to place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are now in Christ, which means your past does not, no longer defines you. 
What people have done to you no longer defines you. What you do as a job no longer defines you. Who people say you are no longer defines you. You are now in Christ. In the letter to the Colossians, Paul says your life is hidden in Christ. Uh, Jesus, um, when he was making the promise of bringing the, the, sending the Holy Spirit after he left the earth, he was telling the disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes, I will be in you and you will be in me. And you're like scratching your head, huh? Or as the British people go, what? Sorry, no British people here. Maybe we're watching, what? But anyways, so what does that look like? What does it look to be in Christ? And I've shared this before, this little, but it's, it's probably one of my favorite pictures of what it looks like to be in Christ. Not perfect, um, but see, I have a microphone and I have a little picture here. So I'm gonna place the, pit, the, the microphone in the picture. Now, if I were to tell you to focus on the picture, you can see the picture, but you can't help but also see the microphone, Right? If I told you to focus on the microphone, you could see the microphone, but you can't help but also see the picture that it's in, right? When we're in Christ, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. At the same way, when God looks at Jesus, he sees you. That's what it means to be in Christ. It's this close relationship that we have. That is our identity as followers of Christ. And as a result of that identity, we are now, as Paul says, saints. Notice he doesn't say to some of the saints in Philippi. He says, no, to all the saints in Philippi. If you are in Christ, you are a follower of Jesus, you're in Christ, you are a saint. I found this interesting. The, uh, the way to become a saint, uh, according to the Roman Catholic Church. Number one, there's 10 steps, okay? How to be a saint. Number one, and this is very oversimplified, but anyways, number one, you got to be Catholic. That makes sense. There we go. Number two, you got to die. Any volunteers? Number three, a local devotion grows around your memory. Okay. Number four, your life is investigated. See, were you really a good person? Were you really uh, the type of person these people are saying you are? Number five, your local bishop sends your case to the Vatican. Number six, you pray for a miracle. Number seven, the Vatican, the Vatican validates the miracle. I don't know how that works, but hey, there you go. Number eight, the Vatican declares you blessed. Number nine, another miracle is prayed for. And then finally, number 10, you are a saint. That is how to become a saint according to the Roman Catholic Church. What about, how does it, what does it mean to be, how do you become a saint for King Jesus? Just like Paul's told the Roman jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Elsewhere, he says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. That's it. When that happens, you're in Christ and as a result of being in Christ, now you are a saint. Verse two, he says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That first word, grace, charis, it means this undeserved favor, kindness, goodness, goodwill. For the Greeks, it was a virtue to show grace to your friends and family. God, on the other hand, shows grace to his enemies. How amazing God is. Paul says um, in Ephesians, salvation is by grace. We don't deserve salvation. We deserve wrath. We deserve judgment for our sins against a holy and righteous God. But God in his grace offers us this free gift of salvation to receive. That's grace. That's amazing. What's even more amazing is that we don't only experience grace at salvation. We experience throughout our life with Christ. Because even after salvation, we still don't deserve anything. We don't deserve anything. But because we're in Christ, he blesses us. We don't deserve to have his word preserved for all these thousands of years for us to read. But he has preserved it for us. That's grace. 
We do not deserve to have the Holy Spirit in our lives to understand his word. But he does. That's grace. We experience that grace every single day. He says, grace and to you and peace, the Greek word arene, which means tranquility, freedom from worry, harmony. It's the idea of everything the way it's supposed to be. So upon salvation, not only do we have peace of mind that our sins have been forgiven and now we have an eternal hope, but more importantly, we have peace in regards to our relationship with God. Paul says in Ephesians prior to us being saved, we're children of wrath. But after salvation, we're now children of God. You know, we, we, we should be the receivers of judgment. Instead, we become receivers of blessing. And so that's amazing, peace. But again, just like grace is not just experienced in salvation, it's also experienced throughout our lives with Christ. So we don't only experience the, 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 the peace there at salvation. When we, as we live our lives, God gives us peace. In fact, that's what Paul's going to bring up in the letter to the Philippians. It's going to be a peace that passes all understanding. That's amazing. That's so cool. And it doesn't come, this grace and this peace doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from our family or our friends. It doesn't come from our political position. It doesn't come from our political leaders. It doesn't come from a vaccine. It doesn't come from anything. It all comes from God, our Father. In the Old Testament, God was described as a Father. Jesus in the New Testament instructs his disciples to pray to God as their Father. He is your Father in heaven which is hard, I know, for some people, especially if you had a really bad father, earthly father. Sometimes uh, people who grew up in a really bad parental situation tend to uh, attach their bad father, the characteristics of their bad father to to God. You know, there's a big difference between if if your heavenly father, or your earthly father was was not good, uh, don't worry, your heavenly father is. Your heavenly father is good. And if you are in Christ, he is your father, he says, and Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord there in, in um, Rome, that was a word that was a title that was only to be ascribed to Caesar. Caesar was Lord. That meant he was the, the guy in charge. But for us, God is the one in charge. Our King Jesus is the one in charge. And from them, we've experienced and continue to experience grace and peace. I want to, before I close, um, it's an observation here. And it's kind of a sad observation. Every follower of Jesus is a saint, but not every saint lives their life as a bond servant. I'll say that again, because this is really, this is very, very true in our, in our, in our world, especially with, within the church. Every follower of Jesus is a saint, but not every saint lives their life as a slave, as a bond servant of Christ. And I've been scratching my head wondering like how, you know, what are some of the reasons? And I've come up with two reasons. There might be more, but the first reason is that Christians have embraced the world, this world's religion of autonomy. That you are the master of your destiny. You chart your own path. It's all about you. It's your body. It's your choice. Whatever you want to do, you go ahead and do it. Live your own truth. And for us Christians, we're kind of hypocritical. Oh, that's horrible in the world. That's horrible. And yet, how do we live? It might be, oh, yes, yes, my life is completely submitted to God. But when it comes to financial decisions, it's like, okay, wait, wait a minute, God. That's, I'm sorry. That's, 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 my, that's my place. That's, that's what I, my job. You know, when it, when it comes to uh, um, um, the, or maybe a hidden sin, it's like, oh, Lord, I submit everything to you except this thing, this, this little sin right here. Don't worry, that, that's my issue. I'll deal with that. When it comes to spending time, how we spend our time, no, no, Lord, that, that's, that's my time. That's my, I, I've worked really, really hard this week. I, I want my time. 
Paul says uh, in his letters to the Corinthians is talking about purity. He's saying, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. price. Jesus paid his blood to secure your salvation. You are his. Start acting like it. He is your master. He's in charge. He has freed you from Satan's sin and death. You know, either you're, you're a slave to Jesus or you're a slave to Satan, sin and death. I would rather be a slave to Jesus because that leads to life and true freedom. The other um, reason why many Christians may not, um, many saints choose not to live as a bondservant of Christ is that being a slave is not very glamorous. If you look at the lives of all the apostles and all the disciples, most of them died. You know, you look at, you know, the apostle John. Uh, John uh, died as an old man, but he, he was exiled to the island of Patmos. If church history is correct, they tried to boil John alive, but it didn't work. And so that's when they uh, uh, exiled him to Patmos. So yeah, that still wasn't great. You know, the, uh, when Emperor Nero lost his mind and was like violently pursuing all the Christians, I mean, those people were tortured, sawed in half, fed to dogs and animals, and it was awful. And even now, you hear stories. If you go to the Voice of the Martyrs, it's a great website, you guys. Go to the, if you want to know how to pray for your brothers and sisters around the world, go to Voice of the Martyrs, and it just has some amazing stories of not only God's faithfulness and God's work in other parts of the world, but, I mean, some tragedies. But it's a great example of what it means to be a slave for God. I shared this story uh, yesterday at the men's group regarding John Bunyan. Uh, John Bunyan uh, lived a long time ago, Englishman, but uh, he was a very poor individual. He married a poor woman. Her dowry was like only four books. Uh, They had nothing. And uh, eventually God, uh, the Holy Spirit convicted him. He heard the gospel. He responded to the gospel. He became a Christian and he started preaching, which was a big deal because in the church... In, in, in England, you, you have to follow the Church of England. You, if you're going to teach, you've got to teach what the Church of England teaches, and you've got to go by what the Church of England says. You've got you know, you to purchase a license and all that kind of stuff. And so John Bunyan's like, that's not biblical. I'm going to follow what God has called me to do and preach the Bible, and that's what I'm going to do. Eventually, he gets arrested, and he's standing before the court, and the judge is like, okay, listen, I understand you're very, very poor, and you have a poor family, you know. Uh, I've you just recently had a baby and that baby's blind. What's going to happen if you get arrested and you're, 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 you're in prison? What's going to happen to your family? And John Bunyan's like, I got to keep on doing what God has called me to do. And uh, the judge is like scratching his head. So, okay, you know, I, I want to reason with you. I want to, I want to give some grace to you. I will allow you to leave if you just sign a document saying you will never preach the gospel the way you're doing it again. And John Bunyan says, no, I can't do that. I have to be obedient to my Lord. And he says, if you are found guilty, you will be sent away for many, many years. So I got to do it. The judge is upset and going, you, it, it seems to me, sir, that you care more about your convictions than your own family. And in a nutshell, John Bunyan saying, I got to fall to Jesus. I belong to him. I'm going to be faithful to him. So he was convicted. He went to prison for many, many, many years. I mean, towards the end, he was able to have visitors and he was able at sometimes the way they worked it out to actually leave prison for the day. Um, But he still was in prison for a long time. He didn't have his freedom. And uh, in his autobiography, uh, as he was recounting that time in the the prison, uh, the time away from his family, he was saying it felt like uh, his skin was being ripped off of his bones. It was so painful to be away from his family. But it was more important for him to be faithful to his Lord and his master because for John, in, in John Bunyan's mind, he was Jesus' slave. So we're going to be diving into this letter more in the coming weeks. And I'm, just going to be, I'm super excited. But uh, if you don't remember anything, because I know we covered a lot, but thing to remember in this, these first two verses is that you are a saint 
but you're also a slave to Jesus. So rejoice that you're a saint. Amazing position to be. But start living as a slave. You are not your own. You have a master, and he's a good master. So follow him. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. Thank you for the faithfulness of Paul and Silas and Timothy and all the apostles who remained faithful to you, who uh, remained uh, uh, sensitive to the leading of your spirit, who boldly proclaimed your gospel truth. And it's because of their work, Lord. I mean, Philippians, uh, many commentators say, was uh, the first church in Europe. And because of that, it spread all the way to where now we benefit from it. So Lord, again, thank you. Thank you for building your church. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being in Christ. Thank you for the amazing uh, position of, of a saint. But Lord, we are also your servants, your slaves, your bond servants, and may we live as such. May we not be conformed to this world anymore. May we be transformed, follow you, no matter what the cost, no matter what people say. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.